this is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Hi, I'm Chris Banbury. In my book, A People's History of Scotland, I cover the Spanish Civil War and its impact in Scotland and talk about some of those who went to fight in the international brigades from Scotland in Spain. I'm really pleased that Willie Maley has edited a book uh, along with and co- three other contributors talking about their fathers and their grandfathers, four volunteers from Scotland who went to fight in Spain in 1936 and who ended up in Franco's jails before returning to Scotland and in all cases resuming the struggle. It's an inspiring story and I'm really pleased to talk to Willie about why he got that book together, why he contributed to that book and about his father, James Maley, one of those volunteers, and the lives, the shared lives of all four in terms of the support for communism, the Scotland they were brought up, and what brought them to Spain. Willie, you'd previously written the play The Count to Catalonia about your father's experiences. What drew you to write this book with your three co-authors? Well, I know so much more now than I did 30 years ago or 33 years ago now when, when, when I wrote that play. I wrote that play with my brother in 1990. And at that time, we didn't know my father was going to live for another 17 years. We thought he was he might not be with us that much longer. He was 82 at the time. But he, we, so, so that that was that was a play, it was a drama. It was based on reading some of the, the accounts books, Voices of the Spanish Civil War, the Ian McDougall book, um, another book called Road to Spain. So we so so we looked at material like that. That was a different operation entirely after my father died in 2007. I started to think about it in a different way. Obviously, it's, you've got a family relationship with Spain because your father fought the international brigades. But the historical interest then took over because when we wrote the play 33 years ago, it was not really a historically detailed documentary drama. It was based on, a, it had a true premise to it, which is that, that my, my, my grandmother, my father's mother, like, like very many other international brigade parents, had seen this a newsreel video in the cinemas in 1937, which showed that the the which proved that their main folk were still alive. So that was quite dramatic, and that was the kind of premise for the play. But the book's a different animal entirely because it's four different perspectives, four different men who ended up in the same place, and it's got at least the element of of of, of being based on documentation on their own words or on the the, 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 the the memories of family members. So the play was a very different a, a creature. It was, it, it was, if you like, from a, from a single idea to, to build a drama out of. The, this book's a collective biography. Four very different men who end up a, a, from working class background to end up in the same place in the same time. That's, that's what's, what's different about this. It's not, it's not a drama. One of the things I liked about the book, and don't get me wrong about this, was um, I was brought up in uh, East Edinburgh. Uh, Donald Renton uh, was uh, lived not so far away in Portobello, and Jody Waters was from Preston Bands. Bands, again, is quite near. And what I'm saying is, don't get me wrong, I know quite a lot of accounts of Glasgow, you know, in the 20, early 20th century, around Harry McShane, but others as well. I thought it was really interesting, and I'd written a little bit about it. Reading Donald Red and Jolly Waters, what was happening elsewhere in Scotland? What was happening in Edinburgh? Huge rally, fascist rally in Ayrshire Hall, disrupted Donald Renton and Jolly Waters. Heckles, Donald Renton seeing the international, they're beaten up and thrown down the stairs and Jolly Waters gets free for that. 
unemployed workers movement, Donald Renton's occupying a flat for four days to stop a family being. And this is kind of bringing across, it's not just the same, but I really like the book because it's bringing across a kind of almost a lost history or a lost life. You know, I'm thinking in terms of some Scottish communism, but it brought it across really vividly, I thought. That's, that's a great point, Chris, and it's abs- you're absolutely right. I think Clydeside gets used as a kind of shorthand, and then it's all about the waste of Scotland, whereas the volunteers came from all over Scotland. And especially after the Communist Party was founded in 1920, a lot of the, the people that joined in the 1920s were, were minors, especially after the general strike. So I think the fact there was a Scotland-wide left, if you like. So you're absolutely right. There'd been far too much of a, of a, of a focus just on Glasgow and, and, as I say, on talking in that lazy way about Red Clydeside and not really thinking about the extent or reach. And I think that's actually true too of the left-wing press because we think of the Daily Worker, which came along in 1930, and then you have to see where were these men getting their information from before 1930 because they were politicised in the 1920s or politicised even before the Communist Party came along. So I think that's that, that, but that issue, you're absolutely right, Jordy Waters, Don Renton, and in fact also E.C. Williams, you know, none, none of them correspond to the kind of more predictable Glasgow model of, of the length of that period. Well, I'm actually, uh, I was in Metcalf already, but I heard him speak in 1974, a young anti-fascist student who was killed presented the National Front rally in March in central London, and he spoke in 1974, a meeting to protest against the police killing of Kevin Gateway. So, I mean, right to the end, the anti-fascism, still proud of that tradition. I mean, another one, Neil Davidson told me the story in 1978 when they were launching the anti-Nazi week. And he had to go and visit Bob Cooney, who was the commissar of the British Battalion in Aberdeen, who was then retired. And Bob Cooney, who was, a, again, a lifelong Communist Party member, happily agreed to sponsor anti-Nazi week. So when these people were still around, when I was on the left in Edinburgh and Glasgow, there was still a feature of May Day marches. You'd see Tom Murray wearing the berry, which is pictured in the book with an international brigade's badge. I think the strange thing, although we've lost these people, I think the point you made, we've actually discovered more about the International Brigades what, and the people who went to fight in Spain in the last 20 years. And your book is adding to this. Absolutely. And I mean, just since the book went to press a few months ago, we've got access to more material, to documentary evidence from the time in prison in Salamanca that I got from Ministry of Culture in Madrid. I got, we got, we've got access to photographs that we couldn't use in the book of the prisoner being release. So the new material, that part of that's that whole process of digitization and so on that's bringing that out. But you've made another excellent point there talking about Tom Murray and others and Don Renton, which is this is also about lifetimes of commitment because too often these people are kind of fixed in time, frozen in amber in the 30s and the 20s when they were at their most active. And I think although there was disaffection, there was the Cold War and all kinds of reasons that people might have become disillusioned, the fact is these men had Life, the lifelong interest in the left and the cause of the left, even through all those defeats and disappointments that they experienced, including Spain, which was an enormously galvanizing experience, but also ultimately defeat. So I think that that idea of following the whole life, the trajectory of the whole life, and I should say something here about the book, because it was Tam Waters and Lisa Croft that taught me how to write about my father, because they were first in with their sections, if you like, about their fathers. And when I saw that they'd been able to follow the life through from beginning to end, as it were, that, that was <laughs> revelatory for me because I didn't think that was possible for me to do as my father just because the documentation was so thin for the early part of his life. But once I started to dig in, I found that it was possible. So that was the, in a way, they provided the model. And I think the fact that it is four 
if you like, complete biographical essays about these men and how it charts their whole life, gives you information and material you wouldn't get in another kind of book that was only concerned with the Spanish Civil War itself and, and, and that quite short period in history. I mean, I was fascinated when I read about Don Grant. I mean, he, he marries a woman, Queenie, his wife, who he meets in London. She's working for the Daily Worker, the Communist Party newspaper. She's a Jewish woman communist who ends up living in, in Edinburgh in the 1950s. Now, you know, I was born 55, so some sort of uh, feeling for what Edinburgh is like. Cannot have been easy. It's a triple one here. Woman, Jewish, communist, you know, living in Edinburgh, which at that time was really dual, Presbyterian. Uh, it was a well, very high culture with the festival. But that wasn't the likes of uh, uh, the likes of us, if you like. And so it's just fascinating. And I'd really like to learn more. It's great. I mean, I thought I thought Jeannie, the daughter, did a great job in being not just on him to like, but his mum, her mum. She she did a brilliant job, and I think I mean, even one of my sisters had said this when she read the book that she loved Jeannie's story and Lisa's too, because just to get a woman's perspective on something that's seen as so much of a kind of masculine and sort of militant experience. But so the and I think Jenny did an absolutely fantastic job in drawing that out. It's interesting because an awful lot of the volunteers, no matter where they came from, were Jewish. And in the case of the German Jewish volunteers, they felt that they were fighting on another front, having a, a, a kind of, you know, in the back foot in a difficult position in, in Germany. And a lot of those who went from other countries, my father was in prison, the prison, same prison cell with several other Jewish prisoners, including the Canadian Bert Levi, as he was known, who taught them to play baseball. So I think that's true. I think a lot of these Jewish volunteers saw themselves as being, as, as really, they were on the front line, they were anti-fascist, if you like, before the before, before 1939, and that was something they were always very proud of. But yeah, these were different times. I think that's another thing that comes through in the book, is that looking back through the lens of the Cold War, things look different for us today. It's hard to think yourself back into the 1920s and 1930s. In fact, we literally we physically can't do it. And I think one thing about these men is they passed through that period. So even after everything that happened in the 1950s and 1960s, they still had, if you like, the imprint of the 1920s and 1930s, hunger marches, in my father's case, the strike and so on. And two big events that, that we should mention, which are the Easter Rising in 1916 and the, the Russian Revolution in 1917. These were massively, massively, I mean, they impacted obviously on the church and, and, and the capitalist states and all the enemies of, of socialism and, and communism, but a huge impact on working class people after the First World War. My father talks about not just the organised meetings that he went to, and he went to meetings in a very non-sectarian, across-the-board way and was sometimes asked to go along to meetings because he was good at remembering what people had said and, and, and whether it were worth listening to. But he talked about, the, and other people have talked about this, the street corner conversations that were to be had. That was the social media of the day. You had crowds that would gather in a street corner and people would be filling them in on whatever the papers were, whatever they'd seen, what they'd read and just read in the library, whatever, and then later whatever was in the Daily Worker. So you had these kind of workshops and seminars taking place at street corners. And my father learned a lot that way, just by listening to the, to the very vehement arguments of these different men. Some of them, sometimes it was on their work breaks that they were talking about this, but there was an absolutely a livid and vivid interest in what was happening in the world. We have died, we destroyed your dad carrying around a set, his own mobile platform to do street means, which he really obviously enjoyed and was good at. Yeah, my father started speaking before he joined the Communist Party, and then when he joined the Communist Party in February 1932, he 
you know, they quickly became a speaker because that's something that he loved to do. And he would carry his little collapsible platform for Govan Cross to Glasgow Green back and forward and loved to love to provoke. As one of the Steve Fullerton, who was a young man at the time, who, who then went to Spain after hearing my father speak, said that he remembers my father used to bait the other young because my father was from an Irish Catholic background. He was he was, he was Catholic and but but a lot of them the, the men that were there coming to chapel would be there to spout the anti communist line, the pro Franco line. And my father n- never shied away from a battle. And because he was kind of in one way speaking to his own, he was very free with his tongue, you know. So my, my, my father really loved to have a go. He loved to have a go at the, the, at the church's, the official church's stance because like a lot of his friends, working class Irish Catholics in Glasgow who went to Spain, you know, they were embedded in the church, but they were anti-fascist and, and, and not anti-communist, which was the message they were getting from the pulpit. Scots made up the biggest percentage proportionally of the volunteers of, of the British Battalion International Brigade, and I think they also had the heaviest losses. Why was that? Why was there such a response from Scotland in 1996? Well, if you listen to Fraser Rayburn and some other historians, they will tell you that the people had not, nothing to lose and nothing to come back to. And although, although it's far more complicated than that, because it has, I think, to do with Irish history and with anti-imperialism being bred in the bone, as, as it were. And yeah, the fact is they were, they were at least a quarter of the, the British uh, contingent and, and a lot of them came for the west of Scotland. I think very many of them from, from, from Glasgow. So I think it's true that they didn't have much to go back to. There's actually been a bit of work done to, and you, you can tell me what you think of this, but some people did some work to say that a lot of these people were first generation immigrants or second generation immigrants. And the claim is, if you like, for the Ukrainian Canadians, for example, a lot of them who went to Spain, that they didn't have roots in the country that were at, they were in, and that what happened was it was easy for them to be internationalists. You know why? Because they didn't have the sense of home that the other people had who had been settled in a country for generations. So that's some people say it was you know the, the, the migrancy of a lot of these international brigaders was something that was a strength that they were able to play on. But it's also the fact that I mean my father didn't have kids at the time. He was twenty eight years old when he went. He wasn't leaving children. But some of these men, including A.C. Williams, he was leaving his pregnant wife with his first child behind and I think, and I know other, I've spoken to men whose fathers died in Spain, whose father died in Spain when the men were four years old, these men that I spoke to, or in one case, 12 years old, and when their mother came in and said, you're the man of the house now, your father's dead. And obviously men left and made great sacrifices. So I think suggesting that, that it was simply didn't have anything to lose because they were part of the impoverished, the working class, I think doesn't quite stand up. I think one thing that's true is they were, they were highly politicised. And you know yourself that there's a tradition in Scotland of public speaking, political agitation and, and so on, and not just on Clyde's side. So I think that's partly to do with a history of, of industry. I think it's partly to do with a history of immigration. And I think, as I say, those two great events, the Russian Revolution, the Easter Rise in 1916, had a massive impact in Glasgow in the 19. 19- 20s, and I think it was a seedbed of vicious speech and real well-informed anger amongst the working class. That they might not have been the, the most literate, and they didn't have access to the college and university, but they were extremely well-informed politically. And my father said that when he was in Spain and in prison, that it was that being in a kind of workshop or seminar that men did argue about politics to the were red in the face. So I think that that's part of it. That it was that I would say that's a culture. It's a political culture a foreign political culture, which is profoundly worldly. I think that was part of the story. It's an interesting point you make about many of them being first-generation migrants. I mean, the book is a picture of a 
International Beatry Union in Florence in 1976. The guy in the middle, he's not named it in the book. I hope that's rectified when it comes to the second edition. I'm sure there will be a second. The guy in picture is a guy called Giovanni Pesci. He was living in eastern France at the time in a mining village. Anti-fascist exiles from Italy. It was quite a big Italian migrant population among the French working class. And he heard La Passionana speak and as a teenager volunteered for the international brigades. After the war ended, he was interned. He got out to France. Obviously, he couldn't go back to Italy. He was interned by the Vichy uh, French uh, administration. When they collapsed in 43, he made his way to back to Turin, where his family came from. And he became commander of the Garibaldi, yes, the communist partisans in Turin, and was then sent into Milan to get them moving and took the command of Milan. When Milan is liberated by the partisans in 45, the picture shows Giovanni in the car being driven through the streets, leading a procession of the partisans coming in. I met him in uh, the early 2000s in Venice, a repudazione communist. This guy really did kill fascists. I mean, he represents that kind of, you're right, I think, you look in France, a lot of the um, Red Bell in Paris, where the communists were coming by his face, Poles and Jews and Italians, lots of migrants. And of course, also true of the Americans, you know, lots of Jews, but also the thing against about it is just Italian was a global phenomenon. There was Chinese, there was Arab volunteers in the international brigades. And this isn't, you know, you could have a Ryanair flight. No, these people were coming from across the world to fight in Spain. It's a remarkable story. It's remarkable. And there were, there were Palestinian volunteers and Greek separate volunteers. And very often there were volunteers who, as I say, were coming. I, I, I've got a friend who, and her, her uncle died in Spain. And he was new, a New Yorker, but a, a, a Lithuanian, Jewish Lithuanian immigrant. So I'm sure that story could be told a hundred times over of where these, the different places these people came from. And the fact that they did have an internationalist outlook that was partly caused by the fact that they couldn't be insular. They couldn't be insular. They, they, there was what, there's one name, Mike Olenek, one of the, the Ukrainian-Canadian volunteers. I mean, I think he had a Romanian passport. He had several places he could have identified with. But he went to Spain, fought with the Taras Shev- Shevchenko company, the Ukrainian company that was formed, and then was in London and during the Second World War, arguing for a second front to be opened. His experience of fighting the Second World War, he said, was nothing as brutal as what had been happening in Spain. And obviously terrible things happened in the Second World War. But Spain, I think, was a particularly unusual conflict because you had this kind of a guerrilla warfare, what was happening in cities, civilian bombings and so on. And then you had, you know, probably one of the last cavalry charges and one of the first atrocities in terms of bombing of civilian cities and, and, and towns. So I think there's that, that, that element is definitely part of it. And I think that, that internationalism now kind of stands out for us because one of the things I would ask is, how, how did, where did they get that information from and how did, how did they manage to come I mean, it, obviously the Communist Party was key to that, but it's just incredible. These men, my, my father got on the bus at, at George Square in Glasgow in December 1946, three double-decker buses packed to the standing room only. There was four or five people for the, the same street as them, the, the, for next door and the next close and so on, on the bus. And you think you have these people who are, I mean, yeah, a lot of them would be members of different branches of the Communist Party, but it was something that really did have that, that reach out with all these global threads all over the world, really. Well, all four of these men featured in the book were in the same machine gun brigade, and they were all captured in their first battle at Jaramba. Jordy Waters is in the book that he had to put you no military training. He just went to go, uh, I think it was your dad, she said. He got no military training. And he said, 
they come out of a course and go into a street fight. I mean, can you just try what happens here in Jarama? Father was actually a, a did of military training because he 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 like a lot of the other communists knew that the war was coming. He joined the territorials in nineteen thirty four, and he he was very good with a rifle. But he, he literally he left his rifle at home, and he regretted that he didn't take his rifle with him. But he was in the machine gun company, and they were operating the operating these Maxim machine guns. So they didn't get a chance to be firing rifles, if you like. They did have infantry support. But you're right; these four men were all with that machine gun company number two. I suppose they did maybe didn't get enough training with the, with the guns they were to use, and the, and, and the, they were in Alzheimer's for a few weeks before the before being thrown into Harama. But I think that was just a necessary development because there was so much, you know, they they had to get there was a nationalist offensive and they had to push it back, and that was a they were called into action before they might have considered themselves ready. But that's that's just what happens in war. You don't really get a chance to do things at the, at the time you might want to, you know. And how lucky were they to survive? Absolutely, because there were men killed in front of them. Three men at least killed in front of them. One of them, Ted Dickinson, an Australian, was shot through the head and father talked about that. And of course, they thought the same thing was going to happen to them because that's that was just the process. They, they were captured and surrounded and they were going to be shot one by one. And it was only when it was realised that they were, you know, it, it, was, it was thought that they were English or British, despite whatever they pegged the uniforms they had on, that a Spanish officer stopped that and then they were, had their thumbs tied with wire and were led along to the, for their first port of captivity. But yeah, they, I think at that time they definitely felt they were staring, although they'd been staring death at the face in the face for a few days before that. But that moment of capture was when they thought they were just going to be shot one by one because that's what it looked like. And they were, they were very lucky not to be killed on that occasion. I should say another thing, when they went, did go out and get into prison, it wasn't just British prisoners. I mean, there were Germans in there who were doomed. There were young Spanish publicans in there who were doomed. And and part of what they were doing is their prison detail was was going out there and, and, and burying bodies. And there's a story in the book about the, when the wagon comes one day and they think it's their turn and, the, and they're ready to make a, some kind of a butch casting and Sundance kid rush out to the when, when the door opens and then they realise it's not for them because it moves on. That's the kind of death wagon. So I think both on the battlefield, at capture, and then in prison, there was always that shadow of, of death over them. And my father did say that he was less afraid than, than some of these younger guys who were, who were around in the prison, who were 16, 17-year-old Spaniards, for example, or Germans getting interrogated and so on. Even one of the men, one of the men who was Jewish among them, you know, at one point the guards came in and said, Moro, Moro, you know, and they were, they were asking him if he was, if he was Moorish and he had, he had to kind of, a, you know, change their minds about that because he, he was getting threatened then. So I think absolutely they, 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 they feared for their life, except they didn't fear for their life because by that time they were pretty much fearless, I think. Your dad to the nose in the book, they understood the need to stop fascism. Why couldn't the British government, stand with Walden's government in 1936, why couldn't they understand that? Well, well somebody might say they, 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 they did understand that, but they were trying to do, do all kind of, kinds of horse trading and card playing while rearming and so on. If you put that one gloss on it, you'd also see a lot of these countries, France, Britain, Germany, whatever opposition they had, they did share a co common dislike and antipathy towards communism. And I think that anti-communism was a big fuel. I mean, one of the men who interrogated my father and his comrades in prison was this Pablo Mary del Val. And him and his, while he was working for in Salamanca for Franco, his brother was working in London for Franco and trying to persuade British MPs to be supportive of Franco. How far he got with that, I don't know. But the fact is, 
they had fingers in various pies and there was a lot of behind the scenes activity. I mean, I always heard that my father and the, his comrades were exchanged for Italian prisoners who'd been captured at Guadalajara in March of, of 47. But lately I've, I've been looking, I mean, thinking more about the role that MI5 in the British state was playing in Spain at that time. And I think it, it had been raised in Parliament. It was a problem for them, the British prisoners. So I think there might have been some hand in the release on, on that front because it was an embarrassment. You're absolutely right. Anybody who was on the left in the 1930s knew there was a war brewing and knew how dangerous fascism was and the governments just seemed to sit in their hands. That's how it looked. And it's, in, in retrospect, it seems really particularly damning. I mean, your dad I mean, comes home back to Glasgow, resumes his activity at the Communist Party. And since there's a second world war, he's coming, he's coming fast. I mean, your dad enlists, it's quite an interesting military career. But I mean, it wasn't really, they weren't exactly welcomed the features of the International Brigade, were they? In the British military forces. Exactly. I mean, they, 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 there's two things. The first thing is that it wasn't really until Russia went into the war in 1941 after Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa that, that, that the communists were, as it were, encouraged to enlist. That's, a, that's the first thing. So there was, there, was, there was that question. The next question was, and I only, I only discovered this myself recently, an awful lot of these Communist Party members who had fought in Spain ended up out in Burma and India. And, and one, one historian, Richard Baxel, had said to me that he, he wondered if that was because the, 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 they wanted them as far away as possible and they wanted them out of the European theatre, if you like, these, these communist agitators and, and, and activists. And that's interesting because, as you'll know from the book, the first thing my father did when he got to India was the, the communists had been released from prison there after 1941. And my father was out agitating among them, amongst those communists who'd been released from prison, because suddenly... In 1941, Russia was on the side of Britain and France and, and so on, and the Allies. And for the next three years, the war on Russia that had been undeclared since 1917 was, was put on ice. So, so that's, that was the significant thing that happened in 1941. When the Soviet Union came into the war, that, that thawed out the, the position of communists then went off to fight fascism in another place. And quite, it seems to be the case, I've not looked too deeply into this, but it seems to be the case that a lot of them ended up, as it were, as far away as possible. I mean, of course, in Europe, issues in the International Brigade became really important in the resistance movement. Um, I mentioned uh, Italy, but in France, you know, Colonel Fandiad, who fired, killed the first German, was a Communist Party member. He had fought in Spain. So did the guy, as his name just gets, see the communists who led the insurrection in Paris in 1944, which freed the city, not often talked about. And the first units into Paris in August 1944 were Spanish Republicans. And they carried on their tanks, they carried that, uh, they painted all the names of battles, Rama, Guadalajara, Ebro, etc. The resistance, they didn't, in Europe, occupied Europe, the international brigades provided a lot of data and a lot of experience that the resistance was built on, which is always an interesting point. No, that's fascinating. And you're absolutely right. For a, for a lot of these men, the, the war had started in 1936. But for some of them, it had started before then, but certainly from 1936, when my father came out of the army and he worked for a while in the barracks at Mary Hill, but he saw himself as having, had, having been involved in anti-fascist struggle over a 10-year period, you know? So I think that's absolutely right that there's that, that for those men, the, the war started before the, 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 the declaration of war in 39, and they saw themselves as having been in the vanguard and they had that experience, those that had survived, bearing in mind an awful lot of them had been killed in, in Spain. 
I want to ask, I'm, I'm going to come in on this one as well, but why is it important to remember both the Spanish Civil War and the role of the International Brigades? I think it's important to remember the Spanish Civil War because it's part, it's one of the deeps of the Second World War. It was a kind of prelude or rehearsal for the Second World War. Germany was trying out tanks and, and, and also anti-tank weapons and, and airplanes there. So I think it's, it's, it is a, it's part of the story of the Second World War. That's really important. It's also part of that story of empire, which is also part of the story of the Second World War, which is sometimes overlooked. That's much more discussed for the First World War. It's part of that story of empire. Took, I mean, Paul Preston came round relatively recently to the view that in some ways this civil war revolution was also a colonial war and it was a loss of colonial status, if you like, for Spain, which was the trigger. And he's actually got a, a line where he talks about this, the fact that Franco and his generals, army of North Africa, they came to visit vengeance upon those that they felt had let down the imperial ambitions of a, a, the Spanish monarchy. And that was something they wanted to remedy and they remedied that by an attack on anything that, that seemed to for them resemble socialism or communism which was, was the, the anti-colonial the curse of anti-colonialism or the curse of colonialism sorry so i think that's really important i think empire is so much a part of what a lot of these wars are about and that's coming out more and more now and i think the 1836 was a really a, a moment when and it didn't happen history is full of these moments when if more people had opened their eyes and saw what was happening there could have been a turning of the tide, if you like. That was possible. There are always those moments when something might have changed. But the fact that it was 35,000 or 40,000 men who went there in various types of experience and so on, they weren't supported by their governments. It's just one of those unfortunate facts. And I know this is another thing that you can maybe spend more time discussing, which is the Soviet Union, whatever criticisms can be aimed at, in were supplying weapons to the international brigades as... Italy and Germany were on the on the other side. They were doing that. I think the fact is that Britain and France have did something then to intervene and in, in, in support, and they didn't do that. So that's why when some people say, well, Russia only came into the war in 1941, but you could say Russia was in the war in 1936, and that proxy sense of giving the support to the, that the, the they could to the international brigades. Talking about, I think it's important as well in terms of Spain as it is today. I mean, it's a standing fact. Spain next, second only to Cambodia. And remember the killing fields, uh, you know, when Pol Pot took over in Cambodia. But Spain is this home to the second highest number of mass, undis undiscovered mass graves. People killed in war in any country in the world. And Spain has not dealt easily with the legacy of the Spanish Civil War. I mean, General Franco remained in power until November 1975 when he died. He wasn't overthrown in uh, 1945 at the end of the war. Besides sending troops to Russia to fight with the Germans, he was in the dreadful fascist mausoleum just outside Madrid. He was buried, built by Republican slave labor, a POW used to slave labor. He remained there until 1919 before his body was finally removed from that. And I think they found it very difficult to deal with it. And it was officially after the dictatorship uh, ended in 75, there was a thing called the Pact of Silence, where everyone agreed to stay quiet about what had taken place under Franco. That's changed in the last 20 years. There's been a huge movement to exhume the mass graves, a movement to remove street names, statues, and much else commemorating fascists. And I think, uh, I think it's still a legacy that Spain is struggling to deal with, and not least in terms of relationship with Catalonia. 
I've never got time to talk about that, but it's interesting. Paul Preston's latest book, Architects of Terror, goes through how anti-Semitic, anti-Freemason, anti-left, but also anti-Catalan, the poles of Francoist uh, movement was from the very outset of it. It's a fascinating read. I think it is important in terms of state that we uh, remember uh, um, as a Franco and what happened in Spain, because it's still not really been resolved at full. Yeah, and it's partly where Catalonia is today, because Catalonia in the early 1930s was pushing for its independence, its autonomy, and was told to put that on hold for the sake of the Republic. Of course, Franco came in and soon crushed the neck of that particular plan. So you're absolutely right. The idea of a unified Spain, an imperial monarchy, was one that Franco brought, brought with him. And whatever he himself thought about the monarchy, or thought about the Catholic Church, he put one in one pocket and one in the other. And that's how he went about, about things. And he was in power for 40 years. I mean, my father used to say this because the Spanish Civil you know, the, it, on, and a lot of people who know about the Second World War would just assume, oh yeah, there were these, there was the Axis powers and there was these dictators and, and, and Hitler got ended and, and Mussolini and so on. And they don't think about the fact that Franco persisted and also there was this deafening silence in Spain that people were being killed after 1939, after 1945. And there really is this, this uh, terrible, terrible uncovering that's going on now of the truths and the graves and, and, and so on. And I think that's something that it's the grandchildren, again, maybe this relates to the book of Father Spock Franco, it's the fact that it's the children and grandchildren now who are the carriers of that memory and, and they are very reluctant to be silenced. That's my sense of what's happening in Spain. Now is this recovery of memory has been driven by this newer generation. Your dad never regretted fighting Spain, did he? But he didn't talk a lot about it himself. Well, like my father's big interest was whatever was going on that day. I mean, a few weeks before he died, age 99, he was he was looking at a map, an atlas and looking at Sudan because there was some things happening there that interested him. So he's very much interested in the politics of the present and that's what he would be doing if he was around today is talking about what was happening in the world today. So he was not a nostalgist. Having said that, he did like to talk about Spain and now and again a young person would come to interview him and he, he would be very happy to chat vividly about what his, his own experiences were and why he went. He never regretted it for a minute, nor did Jody Waters, Don Renton or AC Williams. They they would have gone back at, they would have gone back again. And then you could ask the question of yourself, would you do it? Would you have done it? Would you do that? You know, just leave everything, take a bag with you and get in a bus to go and bite, knowing that, you're, that you might never come back. I have to say, I really enjoyed the book and I think it's a really useful contribution. I encourage all our listeners to, uh, to buy it. I'll be reviewing it on the Counterfile website. I just wish I'd been able to read it for a lot of people's history of Scotland. Uh, it would take much longer. I did write a bit about Scottish volunteers. But Willie, I'd really like to thank you. I think you've done a sterling job editing this book and getting the contributions of three other con- contributors. So I think that makes it. Four different people talking to their you know, parents or grandparents, and they bring them to life. It's really important. That's absolutely right. It's that prismatic perspective, it's that collective biography that really makes this book distinctive. Thank you, Roy. And I hope and encourage everyone listening to this by Our Fathers, Fort Franco, edited by Willie Mayley and published by Lulaf Publishers. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contour Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon 
at patreon.com forward slash contrascott. 